thank you. Thank you for the welcome. Wow, that was a great way to get introduced. <laughs> um, she loves you, so I'm in this prayer group, and she talks about you quite often. And uh, I've listened to her preach, and when she preaches, I feel a love coming out of Mary. And God helped me to have your love, like Pastor Mary does, and for one half hour to pastor your people. Uh, my father's here, and I'm going to introduce him in just a moment. You're the age of his grandchildren. And my children are 28, 30, and 33. So you're a little younger than my children. My grandsons are five years old and six years old. And uh, I'm going I'm to talk about them a little bit tonight when I talk about what it means to be a godly man. Uh, but let me just introduce my father. Dad, could you just stand a moment? He's 87 years old. He was, born in, he was born in 1929. So that means in 1941, when we, this country entered into World War II, he was about 12 or 13 years old. And then later in the 40s, he actually came here to Calvin College, not in this um, campus here, because it was the one uh, near Franklin Fuller. I actually live about six houses down from that campus, and sometimes he and I have gone through, uh, through that campus and taken walks, and there's this um, cement uh, uh, place to sit, little bench there, and he says, oh, I sat there with Mary, that's my mother. <laughs> so, you know, he would walk different places where he fell in love with my mother. And um, actually, there's places on this campus where I can take my wife, Melanie, and I will be married to her for 40 years in a couple of weeks in 19 <laughs> Wow, you guys are really nice. I'm going to videotape you and show you to my congregation. They're nice too, but they're nice too, but you're even more like on it. Wow. You're all awake. <laughs> I'm going to say a few more things of introduction here before um, I ask you to, uh, we stand at our church for the reading of the word, and I'd like you to stand to make me feel at home here. Um, I've raised one son and two daughters, and uh, I talk to my son a lot about what it means to be a man, and uh, I've tried to model manhood to him, and I've failed plenty of times. We talk about, he actually learns more about being a man from my failures, actually, than my successes, just the way it is. My son, he is athletic, although ath athletics don't really uh, challenge him, or he's not, yeah, he doesn't get that much out of it. He's sensitive. Um, he's a, a guy who shows his heart. Um, he's not tough. Uh, he'd, he'd rather draw than, than uh, watch football. He's an artist. He'd rather write lyrics to a song than play basketball. And so he, in some ways, doesn't fit what you might say is the typical model of manhood. Um, I think for my son to grow up in today's culture and for you young men, by the way, I'm, I'm preaching to the young men today so the women are like eavesdropping on it, Okay. <laughs> Next week it switches around because Pastor Mary's going to talk on being a godly woman. 
So there's, on the one hand, there's images of men of being, you know, like six foot three or four or something, 215 pounds and, and tough and, you know, athletic and, and tough it out. And, um, and then, uh, then there's kind of the opposite. I call it the Homer Simpson model of manhood. And actually, there's a, if you watch advertisements on television, there's a lot of Homer Simpson type guys. They're kind of stupid, and the women are always sort of smart. And, and um, so you got these competing images of what it means to be a man. I just think it's confusing to grow up in today's world as a man. Um, my dad's one of my heroes. And it's not because he's perfect, he's far from it. In fact, one of the things I love about my father is that he over and over again in his life will talk about um, where he's failed, and he will even ask me, how have I failed you as a father? And he means it, he wants to know. That's some of my model of manhood. So there's, there's something heroic about my father, and interestingly, it's be- when he's humble that I feel most about myself, I want to be like him. Now, to just kind of layer on some of the complexity of this, um, come with me to the pastor's study. And um, what I'll get is I'll get, uh, so I've been a pastor for 34 years now, and I'll get, I'll get parents sometimes coming in and talking to me about their sons. And, and sometimes the story goes like this, that they seem to have no purpose in life. They just, I mean, they love video games. And, um, and sometimes it's not just a kind of a habit or, 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 or a, a distraction. It's, it actually seems to be the most important thing in their life. And, and so I listen, and sometimes I talk to the young men about it too, and then I go and read about it, and I, and I read things like this, that they're attracted often to video games because it's the only place where they feel like they have a role, they know what it is, they know what it is to get to, you know, the next level, and they can win. They can actually be a hero. But when they try to just live in the world, they just feel like a loser all the time. So there's at least one place where they can feel like they're heroic. There's, I think there's greatness built into all of us. We're made in the image of God. And I think now, now Pastor Mary will talk about uh, godly women, but I think godly men, I just think men have this in them that they want their life to have purpose. My son talks about it all the time purpose. I want to be, it, it, he doesn't say it this way, but this is, the, it, I want to be great. How do I be a man, a great man? And men want to be heroes, I think. You know, I think the, the thing about the video games, you could talk about pornography the same way. Because, man, it's complicated to relate to a real woman, so let's just do it virtually, and I can kind of be the hero there, too. But, yeah. Men don't want to be boys. So what do, we, what do we say into this sort of confusing cultural mishmash? I think, I think Jesus is really clear about this. And, and he's my father's model for manhood, and I give Jesus as the model of manhood to you tonight. So why don't you stand together and honor the reading of the word, and I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 20. I cannot read this without these things on, so here we go. 
By the way, someday you'll be my age. If God gives you that much grace, and this isn't about reading glasses, but it makes me think about that. I'm sitting here in the front row, and I'm thinking, I pray all the time for faith to grow in my children. They're your age, a little bit older than you. And when I see faith come out of them, it, it really um, inspires my faith. And to be led in worship by this worship team and hearing you sing these songs in this space just inspires me. God, the faith is growing in the next generation. Hallelujah. Okay, now let me, someday you'll be, you'll be wearing glasses too. Okay, verse 20. Actually, the verses just before that, Jesus, Jesus is predicting his death. And then this happens. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On your way down, turn to somebody and say, if you want to be great, be my slave. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead and then sit down. I'm not kidding. <clears throat> okay, that's enough. <laughs> it's actually a little shocking to say that, isn't it? It's sort of strange. It's awkward. In fact, this language ought to be a little shocking about greatness. Now, I just want to make some notes about this text. First of all, the disciples, and in fact, the mother of James and John, are obtuse. It's like, what does obtuse mean? <laughs> it means clueless. It means you don't get it. You have no emotional intelligence. What just happened is Jesus says for the third time, the Scripture says, he told them about his death. And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and in a couple days they're going to arrest me, they're going to mock me, they're going to beat me to a pulp, and then they're going to crucify me. And it says, just then, now the, the English translation is then, but it actually could be translated just then. So he just gets done saying that. So he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to get mocked. I'm going to get beaten. I'm going to get crucified. Oh, Jesus, who can sit on your right and who on your left in the kingdom of heaven? Like obtuse. And Jesus is gentle with obtuse people. You're obtuse too. So am I. I just like the way Jesus manages this now. So part of what it means to be a man, if Jesus is your model, and he's certainly mine, is that even when you pour out your heart and you say something very important and people are obtuse, 
you're still gentle. Now, it's interesting. There's just some irony in here. Watch this. She asks, who's going to sit on my right and who's on your left in your kingdom, Jesus? I want my boys to be there. A few days from then, somebody's on his right and somebody's on his left. And it's not adoring disciples. It's crucified criminals. And then he says, "Um, that's not for me to grant. And he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, oh, sure, I can drink the cup. What is this cup thing? Well, in the Bible, it's a symbol either for God's wrath. So it's meant as a metaphor. Now, actually, there's only one person who can stand God's wrath. You know, when, when you're angry because something you have created is treated like trash, we're created in God's image. Or, get it, or, or think of it this way. Most of you aren't parents, I don't think, not yet, probably shouldn't be. But when you become parents, if one of your kids, someone is mean to one of your children and you witness it, you will be angry. And if you're not, I would say you don't love your kid. That doesn't mean you have to hurt somebody over it. But if you're not angry, you probably don't love your kid. Jesus loves his kids. And he's angry about all the mess. And all the wrath gets poured out into a cup and Jesus drinks it. That's what's going on in the Garden of Eden because he's thinking, take this cup from me. That cup they can't drink because you have to be divine to stand all of God's wrath poured out on you. That's actually another sermon, so let me keep going. But Jesus says, actually, you are going to drink this cup. Here's what's interesting about that. That's the cup of suffering. We actually sang about it in one of our songs tonight. I thought, oh, Holy Spirit, you're preparing for the sermon. They're going to drink the cup of suffering. And watch this. It's almost predictive. So who are the two boys that uh, Mrs. Zebedee is asking about? You guys know their names? It's all right. You can guess out loud and we're in a Christian community and you get forgiveness right away. So who are they? James and John. You will drink the cup. Actually, that's how you're going to be heroic. Look what happens. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James is beheaded by Herod. He's probably the second martyr. We know about James, and we appreciate James because he drank that cup of suffering, and he was beheaded by Herod. What happens to John? John goes at the end of his life to an isolated island called Patmos. And there he probably writes the book of Revelation. And there he too drinks the cup of suffering, solitary confinement to the end of his life. So they did drink this. In fact, those two did. The very ones the mother's asking about. That's not what she had in mind, by the way. Beheaded and uh, confinement. And then he closes with this. You know, it's interesting. He could have said, yeah, those dis- that mother, I mean, come on, guys. You know, speak up for yourself. Do you have your mother come in here? He could have said, with the other ten, yeah, 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 they, they shouldn't, don't even think about being first. He actually says, if you want to be great, notice he doesn't squash greatness. He doesn't squash this drive that men have to be heroic. 
He, he redirects it. He doesn't put it down. There's something, I think, I think what that says to us is there's something created in us about being heroic. There's something created in us about being great. But sin, how many of you know sign language? What's the sign for sin? Anybody know? It's this, right? Come on, somebody knows sign language. Say amen. How do you say amen? (laughs) Amen. Did I get it right with this? Isn't sins turned in on yourself? Okay, so greatness being heroic, but it's turned in ourself. We, we get selfish about it. We get self-centered. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, be the servant of all and be the slave of all. So this is how you become great. It's kind of upside down. And he says, give your life as a, lan- a ransom. So he actually inspires them They don't really get it. They're pretty obtuse. They're clueless until he dies and rises again. And then they start to get what it means. Now, you might be saying to me, this passage isn't really about manliness or men. Okay, the disciples are men, but the woman's there, the mother of James and John. Maybe there's other people, women included, listening in. Yes, but watch what Paul does with this. It's almost as if he takes Paul the Apostle, almost as if he takes Matthew 20, and when he starts talking about marriage, it's almost like the same stuff comes out again. Look what happens. So verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And then he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, how's a husband manly? He gives his life up. So, now I want to talk about my father a little bit because I have some enduring images of my father when I was a little child. One of them was... um, I don't remember how often we had a bath. I actually think it was once a week when I was a kid. It was on Saturday night. And we got all washed up, all us five kids, for the next day. And I remember being um, given a bath by my father. So he would, I, so I remember the image I have is him kneeling over the bathtub. So, you know, he could wash us and then he would dry us off. My, my mother with a towel was gentle. My father was like, <laughs> next. <laughs> but the image I have is, is him on the, on the floor kneeling. Here's another image I have. Him washing the bathroom floor. In our home, so I don't want to overgeneralize here, but in our home, it's the guys that made the most... Um, splash in the bathroom, let's put it that way. So it was me and my brother and my father, and my mom washed the bathroom floor. It's not as if she never did it. In fact, she may have done it more often than my dad did. My point is, I have a visual enduring memory of my father kneeling on the floor, washing the bathroom floor. And so here's how I grew up. Men's job is to find the stinkiest job in the house. Men's role is to find the worst job in the house and get on their hands and knees and do it. That's what men do. Here's another, um, uh, 
way that my father gave up his life. So, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her to himself as a holy bride without spot or wrinkle, washing her through the water of the word. Washing. Washing. And then it goes on and Paul says, if you love your wife, you're loving yourself because you're one. And he says, this is how people love themselves. They feed and care for themselves. He says to the men, they feed and care for themselves, so you should do that for your wife. Listen, cleanse, feed, care for. What do men do? They cleanse, feed, and care for. Huh. So here's another enduring image that I have of my father. Sometime when I was probably eight or nine, maybe ten years old, so we would eat supper together almost all the time. Almost every night we'd eat supper together. We didn't have a television. There was no computer screens. You could actually talk to each other for no smartphones. We were just there, right? Oh, for those days again. Sorry if I'm getting nostalgic on y'all. There we sat, all seven of us. Usually my father would open with prayer or he'd ask one of us to. And this particular day that I remember is he had come in, he's a pastor and of a large church with um, plenty of broken people in it and hurt people and hurt people hurt people. And they hurt their pastors. So my father came in and I don't know what he was carrying with him, but he had a tone of voice toward my mother that made us all sit up and go, oh, that ain't doing so good. It was time for supper. Before he prayed, he said this. Mary, that's my mother, I need your forgiveness. You didn't deserve how harsh I was. And children, you overheard that, and I need your forgiveness too before we pray. As I reflect on that later, Here's what I say to myself, I say to my son, and I'm saying to you men today. Find the, you want to be a man? Find the dirtiest job in the house and do it. Seems really consistent to me with Ephesians chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 20. And don't let anyone beat you asking forgiveness. Be the first to ask forgiveness. So go ahead and be first. The head of our house got on his knees and washed the toilet and asked us for forgiveness. That's how you give your life up for your wife. By the way, I don't think it means, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ did the church and gave his life up for her. It's not as if she'll be tied to a railroad track someday and, you know, just in time you'll throw her out of the way and the train goes over you. So there's little ways that you're going to deny yourself and say yes to her. By the way, back to the pastor's study. So I'll get couples come in. They've been married six months or six years or sometimes 16 years. And, and there they sit. And, and the, um, usually the woman is the one who's made the phone call and brought them both in. So I can almost, I read the body language, right? There he is. And what they want to talk about is he's not being the spiritual head of the house. That's what she's saying. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, he doesn't read the Bible very much among us. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't, you know, lead in, in spoken prayers like I'm doing it all the time. And then I open up Ephesians chapter 5. I try to be gentle. 
even though I think she's being obtuse. And I say, you know, what does this say here? It says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it talks about how you care for. And it's really servant work. And it turns out she grew up in the Christian Reformed Church and went to Christian schools all of, her, all of her life, and she's an extrovert, and she likes to talk. The guy can't win. He's an introvert. He's an introvert. He grew up in the public schools. He doesn't know theology. He doesn't know when, you know, Hezekiah, is he a king, or is it the book of the Bible? He doesn't have any idea. And I just say to him, look, if she's more verbal than you are and knows the Bible better, then find ways to serve her, to let her lead in that area, but don't let her outserve you. Then I tell a story of my father. You ask for forgiveness first, you clean the bathroom, you're cool. And you don't need to be an an extrovert to do that. You don't need to know the first five books of the Bible. Right, guy? Serve. By the way, let me just say a little bit about pornography and masturbation here. You know what I love about coming here? I don't have to worry about the little children and what the parents are going to say. Did you talk about that? Did you use the M word when my 10-year-old was there? So here we go. (laughs) Pornography and masturbation actually trains your sexuality in the exact opposite way that God would have you train it. It's self-centered. It's about you. Where sexuality is actually given to us as a way to serve someone else. So if you, actually, if you actually think about this text carefully, it's not, I'm talking about in the context of marriage, it's not your orgasm, men, it's hers. It's not your preferences, it's hers. It's not your sexual flow, it's hers. So lay down, this gets really practical, right? inside marriage. And, I, and some of you, um, most of you aren't married right now, so you're in the state of celibacy. That's the calling of God on your life. And I know the statistics, the statistics and I know how much we all struggle, men, with this stuff. It's really hard to grow up now. I pray for my grandsons like crazy because they're entering in a world where sexuality especially is bent so much toward yourself. So if if you're married, it's like, okay, so it's like fasting. I fast from food every Wednesday, and every time I get a hunger pain, which is basically all day long, this is what I say. Lord, help me to hunger for you more than I hunger for food. So it's a reminder every day. And then when I eat, when I feast, I'm saying to God, this orange juice tastes great. Help me to eat or drink to the glory of God. Now, I don't actually say that out loud, and I don't think about it every time I drink orange juice, but the point is, fasting, fasting is saying, this is what Jesus says about fasting. The, the bride fasts now because the bridegroom is waiting. So we actually fast now to increase our hunger for Jesus. If you're in the state of fasting sexually right now or being celibate, the best thing you need to do is train your sexuality to be in waiting for Jesus. Because men, we're part of the bride. bride. We're bride. Right? The Bible also often talks about all of us being sons. So 
Now the guys have to listen to themselves being described as brides. Okay, it balances out. We're part of the bride. And if I'm, if I'm married, which I am, I'm in, so I'm in the feast often, it is for me to say, this is but a foretaste of what better is going to happen when, as part of your bride, we are together. That's what sexuality is meant to be. Before I was married, it's, I'm going to be sexually pure now as much as possible, O Lord, and forgive me all the times I've failed, and he does, his mercies are new every morning. Then I fast because I want to redirect this longing and say, I'm not going to just spend it on myself. I'm not going to dissipate it. I'm going to be heroic right now because I am anticipating being with you, O Lord. That's the whole point of it all. Now, I'd like to close with how exactly does this happen? How does our heart change in such a way that we want to become servants and that we want to become heroic, not in a self-centered way, but in a self-giving kind of way? How does it work? Well, just read the Bible. This is what Jesus says. He He doesn't squash greatness. He redirects it. And then he says, watch me, for I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Now, I want to use Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities to close this sermon off, and then I'll invite my father to pray over us. A Tale of Two Cities is a novel that takes place during the French Revolution. What's happening during the French Revolution? Lots of people are dying. Tens of thousands of people are dying. They're using the guillotine. People are getting their heads chopped off all over the place, especially the upper classes. So it's really a revolution. The 1% are dying. In fact, more like the 10%. People are dying all over the place. Now, there's two friends in the tale of two cities. One is named Darnay, and the other is Sydney. And they look a lot alike, these two friends. And they also have fallen in love with the same woman. And she chooses Darnay. Sydney remains friends with Darnay, but he's the one who has to give up the dream for his friend. And he, Mary, Darnay, Mary, marries this woman and has a child. Then Darnay is accused of crimes and sentenced to die. So he's in the prison, and he resolves, Darnay does, to meet his death bravely, like a man. But this other friend, Sidney, who, remember, looks like him, decides to go, he he has a plan. He goes into the prison on the day he's supposed to be, his friend is supposed to be executed, And he uses his influence or whatever to actually get in the same cell with him, to visit with him. And Sidney tricks Darnay into switching clothes with him and then drugs him with a substance that he got at the chemist's shop. And then so Darnay now is dressed in the outsider's clothing and looks like Sidney and is out. Now, Sidney, who's got Darnay's clothes on, calls the guards and they come over there and take Darnay out, who's dressed like Sidney, right? And he goes back to his wife. At 2 o'clock, the guards take Sidney from Darnell's cell, believing him to be Darnay, and then he stands in a long line of those condemned. Now, there's a poor seamstress that's also in that line, and she's also falsely sentenced to death, and she at times mended Darnay's clothes, and starts to talk to Sidney 
who she thinks is Darnay, but she's wondering. He doesn't quite look like him. And she starts telling him things that Darnay should have remembered. And Sidney figures out that she's trying to scope him out. And he tries to throw her off track, but she finally realizes that Cindy, Sidney is not Darnay. And she says, are you dying for him? And he replies, and for his wife and child. Shh. And her eyes get really big. And she's filled with wonderful disbelief. And she tells him, I didn't think I could be brave, but if you hold my hand, I think I can be brave. And he wasn't even dying for her. <laughs> but just watching this man give his life for his friend gave her a sense of courage. Do, you, do your eyes get big, men, when you see Jesus like this, pouring out his life for you, where he gave a ransom for you obtuse people. Love poured out. Now, any type of secular or religious moralism, like be the man, just be good, just buck up champ, won't fill you with wonder. You'll shrug at Easter if it's just you trying to measure up to something. You'll shrug off the means of grace. You'll shrug off gospel because it's something like this. If you manage to actually be pretty good, let's say you are 6'3 and 215 pounds and you make the basketball team and, you know, you don't slip up too often, then you'll think, of course God, God loves me. I'm a pretty good person. Or the reverse. You fail. Of course, God doesn't love me. In fact, he hates me. I'm a bad person. Moralism, Christian moralism, won't move you in any way. And likewise, neither will any sort of universalism. Like, oh, God loves anyone, everyone. It, just the same. We're all his children. We're all saved by him. That won't fill you with wonder either. You'll just say, of course God loves me because he loves everyone. What's the big deal? It doesn't move you. It's not until you see the absolute beauty of Jesus, until you see the absolute love of God, how he provides a substitute for you, and, and, and the discipline that goes on, should have gone on you, goes on him instead. <laughs> That'll melt your heart. You're totally humbled. I mean, you're so bad. You're so clueless. He had to die for you. He loved you so much, he wanted to die for you. That changes your heart. You see the cost of forgiveness, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It costs God his son to love you. It, got, it cost him everything to love you. That will humble you. That will inspire you. That will make you a man. I give you Jesus. Now, in a moment, I'm going to invite my father to stand. And I'm going to ask him to pray over us. 
and I think it's a wonderful gift that you, you get to have someone here preaching to you who's old enough to be your father and then have his father who's probably older than most of your grandfathers pray over all the men in this congregation. So I'm going to actually ask the men to stand in a moment. Now, I'm not asking him to pray over us because he's better than us. Now, in some ways, he is. If you're about 20, he's been at this four times longer than you have, more than that. He's been at it 25 years longer than I've been at it, which is he's been, and actually what happens when you get older, you actually see your sin and your need and your brokenness more, not because you're getting weaker physically. It's just because you're getting closer to God and, and there's another layer that starts to come off and there's another issue of pride that starts to come off and you start loving the gospel ever more. That's why I want him to pray for us. I want you to hear a man who was born in 1929 who's been walking this pathway this long pray for you. Someday God gives you the strength. You'll be that age. You might be able to repeat the favor, return the favor. So dad, if you'd stand... And I'm going to ask him to pray right where he is. But I don't want him to stand alone. I invite all the men to stand as well with him. So he feels like he's praying amongst the men. And on the same level, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So men, would you just stand right now? Maybe open your hands. And, and Dad, I'd like you to take your time. You pray until the Holy Spirit says amen. Amen? spoken to your sons and daughters tonight and we have heard from you. There's something so extraordinary about your person. You're altogether great but you sure know how to stoop and get into our hearts and lives. Father, we want very much tonight, we men, I think now, and speak for them, with them, that you, Lord Jesus, will invade us as men and conquer us and anoint us. We want to be great, but we want to be great in you and by you and for you and convince us Spirit of Christ that there's something so expansive about the greatness of the Lord Jesus as it comes to expression in us as we rest in him then we are able to serve Forget about ourselves. Setting boundaries for ourselves, for our relationships. Father, we love you. And we want very much that the Spirit of Christ 
so anoint us and empower us that the your daughters among whom we live and move each day we want them to sense that our greatness is not in our assertiveness or our aggressiveness but we know how to stoop we know how to kneel we know how to serve make plain to us that when we are weak then we are strong when we are dying then we rise thank you lord jesus for the way in which you capture us and anoint us and favor us and use us we want to be deeply satisfied with you and in you and for you so we pray father in the name of jesus and all of the men said amen. amen amen thank you father why don't you be seated what happens next oh the blessing okay well um pastor mary said to me um uh, I've been, we've been offering um, some conversation afterwards uh, downstairs in the, I think it's a choir room. And she, she wondered, um, she says, you don't have to do this. You can go home if you want. Uh, but would you, would you be willing to do that? So yes, I am. Um, however, my wife is waiting for me and I'm going to try to lay my life down for her as well. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time down there with you. <laughs> but I want to spend some time. Uh, so after, you know, after the uh, blessing and um, the closing, then shortly after that, I'll go downstairs. And if any of you want to ask questions, uh, by the way, the edgier the better. And if you have an edgy question and you don't want to admit it's your own, you can just say, you know, I've heard this said. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just men. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd be really thrilled to have some um, edgy questions from from women. If it's too personal, I'll just say it's too personal. Next question, okay? I don't mean, so the edginess should be, I've really heard that, I'm really wondering about this. That's what I mean about that, okay? So you're welcome to come downstairs afterwards if you'd like. Not, not like 300 of you because there were, there's not enough room there. I'll say, let's uh, stand. I'd like to give you the blessing. Ready for this gift? Lord bless you and keep you and turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. The Lord smile on you and fill you with his grace and peace. Amen.